0: And he was going to the doctor. This really simple procedure, simple outpatient procedure. He wasn't worried at all. And he was just having a, a skin tag removed from his neck. He'd had, it, he'd had it for many years. Thanks, Luke. That wasn't in my notes. He was having this skin tag removed from his neck. And, uh, the, and he wasn't worried about it at all. He gets checked in. He's sitting in the waiting room. And, uh, and nothing's going wrong at all with that. But uh, they call his name and he goes back and... And uh, he meets an absolute drill sergeant of a nurse. And at this point, you know, he wasn't alarmed yet, but he's starting to to get concerned. He says, hi, I'm, and she says, down the hall, on the left, stripped to your underwear. And he says, ma'am, I'm sure that's certainly not necessary. I'm just here for a very simple outpatient. Down the hall, on the left, stripped to your underwear. Ma'am, I'm just having a skin tag removed from my neck. Down the hall. On the left, stripped to your underwear. Seeing no other options, he goes down the hall, goes to the left, and he goes into the room. There's a guy sitting there, kind of, kind of sheepishly on the other exam table, and the door closes. And he hears her walking away, and she look, He looks at the guy and says, "Man, can, can you believe that woman?" And he says, "You tell me about it. I'm the UPS driver." That's a silly joke. It really is. (laughs) It's a silly joke, but you know what? It illustrates the way that... What am I doing? It illustrates the way that a lot of us think about God. (laughs) A lot of us think about God that way, and we just say, man, God is just a grumpy old man up in heaven saying, do what I say, or I'll send you to hell, or maybe down the hall, first door on the left. I don't think God says strip your underwear. (laughs) But we just think of God as this grumpy old man who says, do this or else. That's the way that a lot of people in our world think about God. And the question that, that so many people have, the way that this question comes up in our lives and in the conversations that we have with other people, and maybe we think these things ourselves The way that this question comes up is, how could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God, how could a God who loves people send somebody to hell? And you've probably heard it before. Maybe you've thought it before. Maybe you're struggling with that question right now. Well, this morning we're going to face those doubts instead of letting them get the best of us. This morning we're going to answer this tough question instead of being embarrassed by it. And I think that what we'll find is that at the end of our time together this morning, our faith is better for addressing this tough question. So let me pray, and we'll get started. God, we ask that you would speak through me today. My words are just words, and yours are good. So Father, please speak through me for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How could a loving God send someone to hell? how could he do it? It's a great question. If we're going to answer it appropriately, if we're going to do justice to this difficult question, we've got to examine two facets of the question. So first of all, how could a loving God, we've got to look at a loving God and then we've got to look at hell we got to examine both of those things look at a couple of different uh, important ideas about both of those things and then we'll form an answer that we'll get to at the ending so uh, we've got to start with God we got to start with God uh, the question is how could a loving God I want you to interact with me just a little bit this morning how many of you here today think that God is loving by just raising your hand and yeah, good. If you're not raising your hand, just do, just do me a real quick favor. Just raise it real fast. Even if you just go, yeah, perfect. Okay, good. God is loving. Yes, good, good, very good. You're all there. God is loving. He's absolutely a God of love, but that's not the whole story. I want to talk about why it's important that we don't stop with God being a loving God. And I want to use this illustration. This is a pizza. This is not God. This is a pizza. Now, if I looked at this pizza and I said, this is a cheese pizza, would I be wrong? No, it's a pizza that has cheese on it, right? Right? But just go ahead, if you see anything else on that pizza at all, just go ahead and say it. There's sausage, green peppers, what else did I hear? Onions, black olives, mushrooms, it's kind of, yeah, olives, it's kind of debatable, that red stuff there, it's hard to tell if that's sauce or pepperoni. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to have faith that that's pepperoni, okay? Uh, But there are a lot of different things on that pizza. It is a pizza with cheese on it though. But describing it that way wouldn't give us the full picture. Can I propose to you this morning that when we say God is a God of love, it's kind of like calling that thing, go back to my pizza there if you would please, when we say God is a God of love, it's kind of like calling that a cheese pizza. Certainly true, but it's not the whole picture. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. But as much as He is a God of love, He is also holy and righteous and just. God is a God of love, but He is also a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, and a God of justice. As far as sinful people are concerned, each of these characteristics... God's justice and righteousness and holiness, each of those characteristics is in direct conflict with His love for us. So when we're talking about sinners, God's justice and holiness and righteousness are at at odds with His love for us. So while God looks at each of us and says, I love that person... I really do. I think they're a okay That's exactly how I wanted them to be. And they're just fantastic. I like that person. I really love them. So when God says that, it's true. But He also looks at each of us and says, they've sinned. And sin has to be punished. And so His love is at odds. It's in conflict with His righteousness and justice and holiness. If God didn't punish sin, He he would be loving. But He wouldn't be just or holy or righteous. And this is a God-sized problem. That's what theologians call it. They call it a God-sized problem. And here's how we describe a God-sized problem. How does God love people and still deal with the reality of our sinfulness? How does God love people and still deal with the reality of our sinfulness? technical term for this is a head-scratcher. How does God love people and still deal with the reality of sinfulness? Well, we're on the other side of the problem when we know the solution. God accomplished this by punishing Jesus for our sinfulness. You've heard this passage before. It comes from John chapter 3, right around the 16th verse. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You've heard that before, right? Maybe a time or two. Maybe you've heard it so many times that you're in danger of glossing over that verse and going, yeah, 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 I've heard it. I've heard it before. Say something I haven't heard. Well, what I want to do this morning is define one of those words in there. Do you see in the passage where it says gave? He gave His one and only Son. I want to just spend a little bit of time talking about that. Gave, that's a fun, that's a good word, isn't it? That's a a good word. That's one of those words where you you read the word gave and it's kind of one of those like um, a meadow with sunshine and a rainbow over the meadow and it's just beautiful and it's just one of those good words. Maybe there's a unicorn flying in and it's got the word gave written on the side of the unicorn. It's just a good, fun word. But do you know what God's giving You know what god 's giving in this text his son you know what i'd you know i 'd tell you if you asked me to give you my son no <laughs> no you, you can 't have him and and if you persist in this, if you persist to ask this silly question, I will use every ounce of strength that I have to ensure that you never get my son. And yet, here it says that God gave his one and only son And yet, we're not not talking about God giving His Son to work on somebody's farm or, or to help out in the kitchen. God gave His Son to die a horrible death so that everybody who believes in Him won't have to experience the death that they rightfully deserve, but instead experience the life that only Jesus deserves. If that was my son, I'm going, you can't have him. Can't have them. That's my boy. That's my son. And God says, I will give my one and only son. Is God a loving God? Absolutely. How much He loved the world? Well, a lot more than me. Enough to give everything so that everyone will have the opportunity to receive this gift. So when we say God so loved the world that He gave, and we're not talking about giving Christmas presents. We're not talking about giving an endowment. We're talking about God giving everything that is so precious to Him so that all of us will have the opportunity to experience forgiveness. Opportunity is a, an important word. I, I was writing out my notes this week and, and I needed to say the word opportunity. God gave His Son so that everybody would have the opportunity to receive the gift. You know, see, the, there's this important thing about opportunities. In 2012, I had the opportunity to go to Romania for a short-term mission trip. Didn't work out, so I didn't go. And you see, that's a, that's a thing about opportunities. Just because you have an opportunity doesn't mean you take the opportunity. God gave His Son knowing that not everyone would accept His gift. God gave His Son knowing that not everyone would appreciate His gift. God gave His Son knowing that some would mock His gift, that some would spend their lives trying to disprove His gift, and yet He gave it anyway. Why? Because He loves the world that much. Because He loves you that much. That He's willing to be mocked. By those whom he gave the gift to for the chance that some might accept it so when we ask the question how could a loving God send someone to hell it's important to understand the God we're talking about yes he's a loving God but it's not that simple he's also a God that is holy and righteous and just And we're also talking about a God who has agonized over your sin as he watched Jesus suffer for it. That's the kind of God we're talking about as we ask this question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? Well, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to look at God if so we're going to say, how could a loving God send someone to hell? We need to understand that God is more than just loving. Certainly he's loving. He's also holy and righteous and just. That's the first piece of the puzzle. Now we've got to look at hell. And I want to start with this, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. Jesus says this, I say to you, you've heard this this morning, thank you for reading that Beth. I I say to you, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call somebody an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, when we hear the word hell, we, we probably all have some mental image that pops into our mind, some idea, and maybe it looks something like this. Something like this. Thank you. Very good. Maybe, maybe when we think about hell, something like that is what comes into our mind. Uh, a lot of fire, a lot of smoke, heat, very, very awful, dark, a place where there is no hope, right? Um, we think about something like that. Maybe yours has more flames. I don't know, but uh, when Jesus originally spoke of hell, he used a different word. He used a word, Gehenna, Gehenna. And every Israelite would have known Gehenna, that's G-E-H-E-N-N-A, in case you're writing down your notes. Uh, Everyone in Israel would have known Gehenna. Everyone in Jerusalem would have known Gehenna. Uh, either by its history or by its terrible smell. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Gehenna. Uh, It was originally the Valley of Hinnom. And during the reign of some Judean kings, Ahaz and Manasseh specifically, uh, if we look back in the Old Testament, you can find their names, and you can find some of the things that these guys did, and they did terrible things. And one of the things that they did is they practiced child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom, to the pagan god Molech. And so what they would do is they would go up into uh, the the side of the valley and there was a a platform and there was a, a, a pit with fire below it and then they would toss the babies in to sacrifice to Molech. That's pretty unpleasant, isn't it? Nobody wants to think about that. Nobody wants to have that in their past. And so once they got past that and that practice was outlawed, they said the Valley of Hinam is a cursed place. And they didn't want to use it for anything, but they did find one use for it. They turned it into a garbage dump. And so only the worthless, only the things that were useless to society were sent to the valley of Hinnom. Oh, and by the way, just so they didn't run out of space in this valley, they set it on fire. So that way the trash would continually being burned up. And by the time we we make it to the New Testament time, uh, this is an awful place. They would find dead bodies in there. It would always smell of rot and decomposition. It was always on fire and nobody ever wanted to be there. Jesus says the word Gehenna. That's what the people are going to think of. A place where only the terrible Despicable refuse of society would end up, the garbage, a place with a terrible past and no future that was always on fire. This is the word picture that Jesus chose to describe hell. It's vivid, it's easily understood by his audience. And I wonder if Jesus were here today and he were going to give a different metaphor for hell, I wonder what he might choose. I wonder if he might choose Auschwitz with its horrific stockpiles of human shoes and the inescapable gas chambers. I wonder if he might choose Auschwitz as his metaphor for hell. Or maybe, instead of Auschwitz, he would choose a place in ISIS-controlled Iraq. There's no morality. There's no goodness. There's just anarchy when jesus talked about hell he wanted to convey the idea of the worst place imaginable and while there are scriptures that talk about the fires of hell and the 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 worm that will stay burning fire is not the most terrifying thing about this place the most terrifying thing about hell is the complete absence of god the complete absence of god and some of you are going, well, we don't see God here. Nobody can see God and live. That's, that's Bible, right? I mean, we don't see God as we walk around. You're, you're right, but we do see an incredible amount of evidence of God's goodness. We see all kinds of evidence for the goodness of God all around us. So let me give you just a, a quick illustration. Turn to somebody sitting next to you and just look at them for a second. See that person? That that person is evidence of the goodness of God. Now turn to the person you didn't choose the first time and look at them and say, sorry. (laughs) That person is evidence of the goodness of God. And and think about what's outside right now. It's a pretty nice day outside, isn't it? Trees are starting to bloom and uh, I, I have a couple of flowering trees down at the house. And I go outside every morning and I look at them. I just love them. I just love them. And the grass is turning green and the sky is beautiful and there's a nice slight breeze outside or, or maybe even later this afternoon it might rain just a little bit and, and we'll get to see God's power in a thunderstorm and all throughout nature we see evidence of how good God is. As He put this world together in sunshine and rain, springtime and harvest, in all of the intricacies of the way that He's put the world together. We know that God is good just by looking around. Hell will be devoid of all of that. There will be no goodness. There will be no hope. When you turn to the person to your left, you will not see evidence of the goodness of God. You will see a life spent serving self. And you turn to the person to the right, you will not see evidence of the goodness of God. You will, spend, you will see a life spent serving self. And when you look out the window, I don't know if there are windows in hell, but when you look out the window, you will not see evidence of the goodness of God. You will see hopelessness and despair. If there are trees, they will never bloom. If there's grass, it will never grow. If there's clouds, they will always be gray. You will see no evidence of the goodness of God. We have no way of understanding what a place like that will be like. That is completely void of the goodness of God. But that's what hell will be like. Like an ISIS controlled region in Iraq, where the controlling ethic is devoid of any sort of morality. Where the cultural norm says, yeah, it's okay to murder people and kidnap people and do unspeakable things to people. Or hell will be like a concentration camp where evil hearts are in charge and hope is suffocated at every chance. Only hell hell will be worse than that. I want to show you it. Jesus has to say about hell because I can I can hear where you're at you're going you're 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 telling me Tony you're supposed to be saying that a loving God you're supposed to be answering the question why would a loving God send somebody to hell and now you're up here talking about how awful hell will will be why why are you doing this this doesn't seem to make any sense I want to I want to show you what Jesus has to say about hell because this is an important text okay ready This is Matthew 25 and verse 41. The the context here is judgment. But Jesus tells us something very important. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Prepared for the devil and his demons. What was that last thing I just said? Who is it prepared for? It was prepared for the devil and his demons. Jesus says that hell is a place that was prepared for the devil and his demons. Here's why that's significant. God didn't create hell to send people there. It was a place prepared for the devil and his demons. It's also a place for those who choose to rebel against God. I want to say it one other way and then we'll move on. Most of the time we think of hell backwards. It's kind of like the Old Testament idea. uh, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when when we think about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we go, okay, that guy slapped me so I can slap him. That's permission to do something. That guy insulted me so I can insult him. We think it's permission to get even. That's not why God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What God intended was that it's incentive to not play dirty. Don't go after that guy's eye. Why? Because he'll come after yours. Don't go for that guy's tooth. I don't know why you'd want somebody's tooth anyway. Don't go after that guy's tooth. Why? Why? Because He's going to come for yours. Actions have consequences. It's not permission to go after somebody. It's saying don't play dirty. We think of hell backwards too. God doesn't want to send people to hell. God doesn't want to send people to hell, but He does want everyone to know that the cost of rebellion is high. Can I say that one more time? God doesn't want to send people to hell. But He does want everyone to know that the cost of rebellion is high. So God is love. He's a God of love. And everybody said amen. Go ahead and do it. Alright, good. Very good. But He's also a holy and righteous and just God And we've got to look at the whole picture of God. We can't just take one facet of Him and and, and expect ourselves to make sense of His judgments based on just His loving nature. We've also got to look at the fact that He's holy and righteous and just. Because of that, God can't overlook sin. Be inconsistent with His nature. He's got to punish sin, but He didn't want to punish sin in such a way that it would affect us for all eternity. So He gives us Jesus. And you're familiar with John 3.16. You've heard it before. Maybe you're less familiar with the verse that comes right after it. It happens to be one that helps us as we begin to answer this question. John 3.17 says, God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. God didn't send Jesus to judge the world, but He sent Jesus to save the world. I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. If God sent Jesus to judge the world, we'd be hearing this morning's sermon in hell. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He sent Jesus into the world to save it. I want you to take a look at how Peter says this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. That's good news. You know why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a God who wants to send people to hell? Let me ask you a question. I'm going to read the verse again for full effect. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm going to ask you the question, so be ready for it this time. Does that sound like a God who wants to send people to hell? No! No. So here's my answer. If you ask me, why would a loving God send someone to hell? Here's what i tell you. God doesn't send people to hell, and He doesn't force people to heaven. God doesn't send people to hell, but He's not going to force you to go to heaven. C.S. Lewis said years ago that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God will say, your will be done. Because out the purpose that God gives me, my life is a sinful, selfish mess. I don't want God to say to me, Your will be done, Tony. That's why I choose to say, God, your will be done. Can I submit to you this morning that the better option is to submit your will to God? God doesn't want to send people to hell. But He's not going to force you to go to heaven. There's a similar question. It's a tough one that comes up when you have this conversation. I've been having this conversation with a good friend of mine recently. And uh, he's asked this similar question. It's one I've heard before. And it goes this. It's What about the fate of people who have never heard about Jesus? Right, what, if, what, if, what if somebody lives on an island that nobody even knows exists? Or there's a tribe of people on the side of a mountain that nobody's ever been able to reach and they've never even heard the name of Jesus. What about them? I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know. I've looked into it. I've studied it the best I can and I don't know. And I don't like that when that's my answer, but that's the best answer I have. I don't know. And so I thought this week, as I prepare for this sermon, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper. And and so I have a couple of friends that are missionaries, maybe you know them, uh, Ben and Karen Pennington. And I thought, well, man, they they do mission work, and so they would be closer to people who have never heard about Jesus. And so maybe that's less of a, a mental exercise for them, and it's more of a reality that they've dealt with in the past. And so I asked Ben and Karen, and here's what they said. He said, "It puts a great responsibility on the Christian to share the gospel. I honestly don't have a firm answer. Ultimately, God has to decide. This is what I love. In the meantime, we must evangelize mightily. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it works. I don't know how God will judge people who have never heard about Jesus. I hope He's merciful. Because he's been merciful to me. But in the meantime, our job is to evangelize mightily. We don't know how it'll shake out, but that's God's job. Our job. My job is to make sure that as many people as possible have heard the good news. Your job. Your job is to make sure that as many people have heard the good news as possible. Our job is to make sure that as many people as possible have heard the good news. That's our purpose, church. Our purpose is not to preserve tradition. Our purpose is not to blend into culture. Our purpose is not to be civic-minded, and our purpose is not to continue to exist. Our purpose is to change people's lives with the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And it is good news. Uh, this illustration isn't mine, but I want to use it this morning. Uh, this is Mount Everest. It's the tallest point on Earth. Just a shade over 29,000 feet tall. So that's, that's tall. That's way up there in the air. Okay? Uh, this is the Challenger Deep. It's in the Marianas Trench. It's the deepest point on planet Earth. It's the lowest spot, just shy of 36,000 feet deep. People have been to the top of Mount Everest, but people have not been to the depths of the Challenger Deep. And here's what I want you to know. You could put Mount Everest inside the Challenger Deep, and it would still be covered by over a mile of water. And if you drove a ship on top of it, you'd never even know that Mount Everest was down there. It doesn't matter how high of a mountain of sin you have piled up in your life. When it is plunged into the depths of God's grace, it's covered up, it's forgiven, and you don't know it's there anymore. This isn't me making this up, by the way. This the Bible says this. This is Micah chapter seven and verse nineteen. Here's what it says Once again you will have compassion on us, you will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the deepest parts of the ocean. You see that right there? You will throw them into the deepest parts of the ocean. It doesn't matter how high of a mountain of sin you have built up in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. What matters is who you put your trust in now. And I'm telling you, if you put your trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. So much so that you won't even know it's there. Your sins will be buried in the deepest parts of the sea. Church, we have good news. We have good news that God loves us so much that even though we deserve hell, He made heaven possible. That even though we were dead because of our sins, we can be made alive in Christ. You see, we hear the question asked how could a loving God send people to hell? There's an equally valid question. It goes the other way How could a righteous God allow us into heaven? only by the grace that is freely extended to all of us in Christ Jesus. But you still have to choose to accept that grace. And you have the opportunity. Remember what I said about opportunities? Just because you have an opportunity doesn't mean something happens. You have the opportunity today to accept God's grace. If that's you, I want to invite you to come forward as we sing, and we can talk about it. But for the rest of us, as we've thought about this question, why would a loving God send people to hell? I hope that you're more prepared to answer that question to somebody who might ask you or to continue thinking through that answer on your own. Here's my answer. God doesn't send people to hell. But He doesn't force people to heaven either. So let me pray with you. And then we'll have a time of decision. God, We thank you that you love us.